George Eliot was a novelist of the 19th century. That's right, that's her net, that's George. Uh, next to War and Peace, she wrote the longest novel ever called Middlemarch. I've not read that. But she also wrote a short story called Jane's Repentance. It's about a wife of an attorney who ends up getting involved in a dispute in a small town about who's going to be the next minister. I'm telling you, it's an old day, an old story. I want to read you a paragraph from that story. I haven't read the story, but I have read this paragraph because it's the very first thing that ends up in this book by a guy named Simeon Zoll about the Holy Spirit. It's a paragraph. It's just a paragraph, and it's a little longish. It's okay. You don't need to know the plot, but I want you to hear something that I think is really profound and makes total sense why he would put it on the book about the Holy Spirit, and it will remind you that literature is for a reason and that there is as much pleasure to literature as there is plot. So I want you to hear this paragraph and just sit with it for a minute. Ideas are often poor ghosts. Our sun-filled eyes cannot discern them. They pass athwart us in thin vapor and cannot make themselves felt. But sometimes they're made flesh. They breathe upon us with warm breath. They touch us with soft, responsive hands. They look at us with sad, sincere eyes and speak to us in appealing tones. And then their presence is of power. And then they shake us like a passion. And we are drawn after them with gentle compulsion as flame is drawn to flame. That's art. You hear a paragraph like that and it's like, you know, when a symphony does their work and then they, and they finish and there's that little space between the final chord and the audience's response with applause and the music just sort of echoes in the chamber and you almost don't want to let that moment pass. You just want to be set sort of in a reverent silence. That's, a paragraph like that should leave you there. Ideas, we, you and I live in a world of words. And words to us are grammar and meaning and logic. And insofar as those words subscribe to those conventions, those ideas have merit. But I think you would agree that some ideas, like what Eliot is saying in the story, they can still be kind of wispy and insubstantial and they live there and you can't deny them but they don't they don't land they don't hit and yet something happens and those ideas as he says become flesh they take on a reality that before was just a concept love for will hunting there and the very first clip was an idea that was like a ghost and Robin Williams was there to say, you know nothing of an idea that's become flesh like love. Why we are listening to a series about the Holy Spirit of God is I think because that's what the Spirit is for. 
that ideas about the Lord that may have a certain merit to them and a certain logic to them and a certain understanding to them, they can still live like ghosts. And those ideas have to become flesh. And the only way they make that transition from that one state into another is by the Holy Spirit. That's how dependent we are. That is his purpose. And the sooner that I and you get a hold of the idea that the Holy Spirit is not just some sort of Casper figure that we give a sort of a token nod to and realize that he is love at work, the sooner that the ideas that you and I talk about and sing about and pray about and hear me flap my gums about, it's the sooner that those ideas become flesh. How does it happen? That's why we're here. That's what we're considering We're going to listen to a very familiar passage this morning if you've grown up in the church. And there is absolutely no explicit mention of the Spirit. But this passage is bookended by references to the Holy Spirit, some of which we heard last week, some of which you will hear next week. But I can't imagine a more appropriate passage to discover that the Holy Spirit is at work in a passage on Jesus talking about abiding. We want the Spirit to let two ideas become flesh. And we will need the Spirit to let two ideas become flesh. And those two ideas that I'd like to piece out for you as well as I can, hopefully with the blessing and help of the Spirit, is what you most need first and what's most needed from you. What you most need and what's most needed from you. And maybe if the Spirit would be kind to us, those ideas would travel from being ghosts to made flesh. I wonder if you'd stand. We're in John chapter 15. We'll read the first 17 verses. I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you're clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish. It will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you, that your joy, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You're my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant doesn't know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. 
For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you'll love one another. These are the ideas of the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In John's gospel, it speaks of Jesus as the word made flesh. And we would argue that what conversion is, is that words about the word made flesh, those words become flesh, to borrow Eliot's scheme. That's conversion. Ideas of him, you become persuaded of, such that you rest in them because you've been persuaded by one who is not you and it's not just a product of your own mental capacity. Thank goodness it's not because of our mental capacity. Let me cut to the chase here, though, about what's the first idea that the Holy Spirit must make flesh and it's what is needed, what you most need. It's not rocket science. It's not nuclear physics. It's very clear that you would abide. Abide in me and I in you. Abide in my love. That's what you most need. That is the idea that must become flesh. And as soon as I say that word abide, we're going like, what in the world does that mean? Like nobody talks about that anymore, right? We talk about people who are law abiding, law following. What that really means is that the law lives in you. You, you hear it in that frame and, and then you hear it in Coen Brothers movies, right? In fact, I, I, I will give you a slap on the back if you can name the actor, the one actor that uses the word abide in two of the Coen Brothers films. The love of decency does not abide in you. That's one line. There's the hint. What does it mean? What, are we what does it mean to abide in him and he in us and abide in his love? With the help of one scholar's observation, just change one letter and you, you start to get close to what he means by abide. Change abide to abode. What's abode? It's the place where you live. It is your residence. It's the place you call home. To abide, therefore, is to find a place of rest and refuge, a place of home and familiarity in what he has said and in what he has told you, in what he says about you and what he has done for you. That's what it means to find your rest. If any of you have ever spent any length of time in another culture, you know what it's like. You get there, you unpack your bags, you start to walk around, and you feel like you're walking around in a room in the dark. I don't get it. I don't know why you do that. I don't know what they're saying. I'm not sure why they travel on that side of the street. I don't, and I feel, I, I'm, I'm, I'm on high alert, and I don't get it. I'm unfamiliar, and I feel anxious. And then, hopefully, over time, you start to learn the drill. You start to get the feel about. Things start to become second nature, and at last, you can sort of get it. I'm in rest. I can relax. I'm not on high alert. Jesus is saying to abide in me is to come to a place where he has said some things to you and now, now you're at home. Jesus is more than just a set of facts. He is about a set of facts that have a certain feel. In the words of our kids these days, he has a certain vibe. You get a rest in that vibe. 
You get that rhythm. A rest and a knowledge of him, of how he thinks of you and what he's done for you. Facts that are different from just like force equals mass times acceleration. As important as a fact like that may be. This is a fact with a feel that I will argue, that I think Jesus is arguing is required of the Holy Spirit that that idea might take on flesh. You abide in him. And as you become more familiar and trusting in that love, it helps you think well and respond to your failures, to your regrets, to your triumphs, to your tragedies, to your sorrows, and to your death. And that is not something you just sort of, if I just think long enough about it, it will just sort of click for me. You have to be acted upon. And when that kind of rest begins to surface in you, when that trust begins to surface in you, it's, it's more than just a belief. It is a belief that his love is real and that that love is at work in you. It has been a while since I have trotted out this comment from C.S. Lewis, but in keeping with that whole idea of abiding as in the language of being in a home, listen to what Lewis says about what God is at work in us. He says this, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house, and at first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right, stopping the leaks in the roof, and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised, but presently, He starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably, and it does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one that you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage. He's building a palace, and he intends to come in and live in it himself. What does it mean to abide in his love? It is to believe that his love for you is real and that that love has a purpose for you besides just promising you that you're forgiven. It's where it starts. It's just where it starts. There's a much larger project involved. You become a host to his life in you. That's what it means to abide. That's the metaphor you get just from the the King James version of the Translation of that Greek word, abide. But take it from a different angle. Let's, let's keep with the metaphor that Jesus borrows, the whole idea of, of branch, of, of vine and branch. Like That's where we are here, right? That's, that's the metaphor he chooses to get, a point his, get his point across. To abide is to think of yourself as a branch is to a vine. The branch doesn't simply agree, yes, I believe, You are a vine. You have made your case. It's more than just sort of an agreement, an acknowledgement, a mental assent to an idea. A branch to a vine is a belief that I am strengthened, protected, and nourished by this vine. I am dependent in a way that I am dependent on no one and nothing else. This vine is a source of life. In that sense, you begin to think of Jesus as a constant, a thing that does not change, a fixed law of faithfulness and of favor, because he's a vine. And everything that I might need 
To be alive in him is from him. I have sat with this passage for a long time, and it's taken me a very long time to get my head around what he means by abide. And I, I, I have thought of a way to paraphrase what he's getting at here that may work. And you can quibble with me later. What does it mean to hear from him, abide in me and I in you? I think he's saying this. I'm not going anywhere. Now don't go anywhere. In everything that you despise yourself about, in everything that you regret about your life, in everything that you wish were different tomorrow and won't be different tomorrow, in all the things that are outside of your control, circumstances and functions of your character and your heart, you would go, I don't know why anybody puts up with me. He looks at you and he says, I'm not going anywhere. But in that same breath, he is also saying, so don't go anywhere. Don't, look, we say, kids, come to dinner. And it's like cockroaches when the lights come on. <laughs> I just compared my kids to cockroaches. I can't believe it. Um, they scatter. And we have to say, don't wander off. Don't drift. We're here. Food is here. Jesus is saying, I'm not going anywhere. And don't go anywhere. Don't drift. Don't look away. Don't think you can do this without me. I think the paraphrase works. We can talk about it later. I'm not going anywhere. You don't go anywhere. Whether you are faithful or faithless, whether you are loving or loveless, whether you feel like a human or absolutely inhuman, he is saying, I'm not going anywhere. That's the nature of his promise. And that idea has to become flesh. Why? I, it's probably obvious already why, but let, let's, let's refer to the answers that he's already given us. Why is it essential that you and I believe that he's not going anywhere, so don't go anywhere? One, you can't go around this world as him unless you were continually guided and strengthened by him. That's the whole idea of vine and branch. The metaphor is purposeful. He's not just being interesting. There is a mark of dependence here. You and I are meant to be him. Go and make disciples. Teach them everything that I've taught you, right? We are his representatives. We are his ambassadors. You can't do that unless you're continually being reminded of the fact that his love for you is real. There's, there is no sustainable way to persevere in what he's asking of you without his help. You can't. I can't. I've tried. In fact, you know, Lewis talks about taking out a whole new wing in the, in the language and the metaphor of the house. Uh, Jesus says something similar in the idea of pruning. Every one of you in this room, whether you believe in Jesus or not, will have experiences that when you look at a plant, you will know what it's like to feel like I'm being cut back. If you don't know anything about gardening and you watch a gardener cut off blooms or cut stuff off you go what are you what are you doing the the, the one of the most recent in marriage there are dust-ups newsflash and and one of our most recent dust-ups is whether or not i was doing violence to the hydrangeas in our front beds <laughs> right um you know from her point of view the, the way she would speak it was almost you could have compared to her going ah what are you doing like she didn't say that in so many words right and you're cutting back, not now. So you know, pruning is all about what if and when and how, right? Let's just say that um, 
one hypothesis prevailed about the condition of our hydrangeas. I won't reveal the results of that hypothesis because I don't want to embarrass her. Wow. Look, every one of you in this room knows what it likes to get cut back. To be impeded. Something happens to you. Some struggle. Something that leaves you absolutely disoriented, if not debilitated. You are confused. Maybe you're angry. It may be full of pain. And it's probably not without tears. We all know what it's like to be cut back. But Jesus is saying, look, you're going to get pruned. I'm telling you, if you're in the vine, the pruning can actually be to your benefit. Because it's in a moment like that, that you discover more of him, or you can. And when you do, it is an opportunity for a flourishing that a road, steady, and without impediment cannot offer. Best to be cut back engrafted into the vine than not. It is the way to growth. And it is the way to fulfill your very reason for being. By this, he says, my father is glorified so that you may prove to be my disciples. What, why are we here? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. And how does that happen? By believing that we must abide in him and he in us. And the only other reason Jesus gives about why this is important is this. You can't face life as it is without having what Jesus had to face his cross. That's a long sentence. Let me say it again. You can't face life as it is unless you have what Jesus had to face his cross. Are you going to be crucified? Not likely. What do I mean? You and I tend to think of Jesus like a superhero without a cape. Well, he's God. He can do all of that. Let me just, let's replay the tape here for a moment. Was Jesus ever weary like you? Yeah. John 4, he was weary. Was he ever thirsty like you? Yeah, he was. Was Jesus ever hungry like you? Yeah. What did he tell his disciples to go get at the store? Mints? No. Food. Jesus ever weep like you? I know a moment, so do you. Jesus wept. Shortest verse in the whole New Testament. Could Jesus bleed? Yes. And could he die? Congratulations. We are all in the same camp. I'm finding a rather number of commonalities between him and us. What enabled him to persevere in his path in light of all of those ways in which he entered into our limitation? He needed this thing called joy. The author of Hebrews puts it this way. He was the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Does that mean Jesus was happy about going to his cross? No. Does that mean Jesus was mirthful about going to his cross? The dude was sweating blood and tears. What do I mean by joy, then, from his point of view? Okay, I'm going to let you listen to a very real-world explanation of what joy is. And this is a growth moment for me. Why? Because I'm going to let you listen to testimony from baseball players from the University of Oklahoma. So I'm a big person for allowing you to bear witness to them. So Watha, I don't, if you're here, this one's for you. But listen to these OU baseball. You've probably already seen this. It's been all on the interwebs. But here we are. Here's three baseball players on the OU baseball team. Just listen. Okay, now back to our left. 
Alex Scarborough with ESPN, for, for the players, I know you talked about keeping the joy of the game, but I'm curious, it's a long season, right? And you guys have had the target on your back the entire time, the win streak being number one. How do you handle the unique pressure that comes with that? How do you keep the joy for so long when anxiety seems like a thing that could very easily set in? Well, the only way that you can have a joy that doesn't fade away is from the Lord. And any other type of joy is actually happiness that comes from circumstances and outcomes. And um, I think Coach has said this before, but joy from the Lord is really the only thing that can keep you motivated, um, uh, just in a good mindset, uh, no matter the outcomes. Thankfully, we've had a lot of success this year, but if it was the other way around, uh, joy from the Lord is the only thing that can keep you embracing those memories, moments, friendships, and all of that. So uh, I would, that's really the only, the only answer to that because there's no other way that softball can bring you that um, because of how much failure comes in it and just how much of a roller coaster the game can be. 1,000% agree with Grace Lyons. Um, I went through that my freshman year. I'd, I was so happy to win the college. I've talked about this before, but I was just so happy that we won the College World Series, but I didn't feel joy. I didn't have, I didn't know what to do the next day. I didn't know what to do for that following week. I didn't feel filled and I had to find Christ in that. And I think that is what makes our team so strong is that we're not afraid to lose because if it's not the end of the world, if we do lose, yes, obviously we've worked our butts off to be here and we want to win, but it's not the end of the world because our life is in Christ and that's all that matters. Yeah. Um, I think a huge thing that we've really just latched onto is eyes up and you guys see us doing this and pointing up, but we're really like fixing our eyes on Christ. And that's something where, like they were saying, you can't find a fulfillment in an outcome, whether it's good or bad. And um, I think that's why we're so steady in what we do and, and our love for each other and our love for the game, because we know this game is giving us the opportunity to glorify God. Mm -hmm. And um, I just think once we figured that out and that was our purpose and everyone was all in with that, um, it's really changed so much for us. And I mean, I know myself, I, I've seen so much of a growth in myself with um, once I turned to Jesus and I realized how he had changed my outlook on life, not just softball, but understanding how much I have to live for, and that's living to exemplify the kingdom. And I think that brings so much freedom. And I'm sure everyone's story is similar, but we all have those great testimonies that have really like, shown how awesome it is to play for something bigger. Um, and I think that's just what brings me so much joy. And no matter the outcome, whether we get a trophy in the end or not, we're, this isn't our home, and I think that's what's amazing about it is we have so much more. We have an eternity of joy with our Father, and I'm so excited about that. And, yes, I live in the moment, but I know this isn't my home, and um, no matter what, my sisters in Christ will be there with me in the end um, when we're with our, our King. So, Patty, uh, you've got to keep your eye on the prize and, and really work with these players. So they played Florida State, and that happened. They won. So sorry, Seminoles fans. Um, look, uh, it's always kind of uh, challenging when you listen to sports figures start talking about God. Uh, you know, I thank Jesus that he helped me kick the you know upright through the uprights, right? So, so when you when you went wide left, was Jesus out getting nachos? I, um, <laughs> right? <laughs> what? Sorry. Um, and that's why a moment like this when um, athletes kind of speak a kind of knowledge and understanding and wisdom, it's like, hmm, okay, yeah. Oh, oh to have had a camera on the, on the journalist in the room, um, right? Look, they loved winning. Isn't that evident, right? The accomplishment is great. The community is great. 
There's all sorts of satisfaction that you and I derive from all sorts of things, but they're just saying, look, just don't tether, tether your deepest sort of ballast and resilience and, and, and joy to anything that can end up being on the losing side of that. Where does that come from? It comes from abiding. This is the path. The one thing you most need is to abide in him and he in you. That's what one idea the spirit is out to make flesh. And what they're telling you when she said there, the last one there says, it's a freedom. A freedom to do what? That's my last point. I've told you what I think the spirit is out to do in us that you most need. Now let's talk about what's most needed from you. And this too is not complicated. What do you most need? It's plain. Verse 12. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Whatever you study, whatever your hobby is, whatever you love doing, whatever you pursue, whatever trips you go on, whatever else that you might engage your heart and mind with in this life, core, foundation, top of the list priority, love as I have loved you. All those other things are great. If this isn't true, you've missed the point. You've lost the plot. But let's, um, let's pause for just a second because when I say love as I have loved you, that word love, I wonder if you would agree that the idea of the word love maybe has the potential for being distorted and corrupted and maybe misshapen, right? A lot of talk of love. And we, we probably better define what Jesus means by love here because there are some errors in our versions of what we define love as that we probably should take stock of lest we go down the wrong path. What does he say? This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Verse 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. There's the definition of love. Self-forgetful, often sacrificial, thinking most or at least equally, of their interests and their good. That's the definition of love. Self-forgetful, often sacrificial, looking out for the interests and good of another. Why? Like, you're like, I know, I know, I know. Mm. If I may beg to differ. There are versions of love, or approximations of love, that what they're really out to do is they just want to keep the peace. They don't want to say anything that ruffles feathers. Or it's just an attempt to gain their approval or at least not threaten their approval of you. Anybody ever done that? I know nothing about that. What is that? What's at the center of that move? It's you. It's not self-forgetful. In your mind, you might be telling yourself, no, that's love. I'm, I'm just, I'm doing it for them. Come on. How many things do you and I do that's actually just to sort of not make them mad? It's not love. It's something else. And in the same way where Paul elaborates on what it means to be loving, that wonderful ode, we, we devoted a whole series to it a couple years ago, a few years ago, and he says in 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind, love is, doesn't envy or boast, and then he lands it this way, it doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. There's a lot of people, maybe in your world or in this world, that want something from you and demand something from you, 
And in your mind, you might think, the best thing that I can do for them is to grant their demands. I would like to argue that if what they are asking of you, what they're demanding from you is not true, it's not good, and to accommodate them is not loving. It is something else. Love and truth walk hand in hand. What God has joined together, let no man tear asunder. And I'm not here to suggest to you that what is true is always clear and self-evident. But when you're talking about love, you better never let truth walk out the door. They go together. And they always will, and they have to. Jesus defines what love looks like. And already, that bar sounds pretty high. Nigh on impossible to the extent that if that's the definition of love why bother trying I'll never get there I have great news for you not only did Jesus give us a command and not only did Jesus give us an example of that command but what Jesus accomplished by being an example of that command needs to shape how you think of following this command how Jesus was an example and what it accomplished in his command is how you have to think about that command. What do I mean? What he did for you and how he regards you in an example of that love changes the whole way you think about yourself. He uses three words to define you. You've been appointed. You've been appointed to bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. You have been set apart. You have been purposed. This is your gig. It is not a gig for the professionals. It is not a gig for somebody else. This is your gig to love as you have been loved, to bear fruit in that direction, in that way. You've been appointed to that, but you've been appointed to that not because he was impressed with you or because he needed you or because he was desperate for community. You were appointed to that gig because he chose you. You were chosen. He wasn't obliged to bring you in. He wasn't obliged to do anything for you. But he chose to. And that means, friends, you're his because of grace. He laid down his life. Why? In grace, in unmerited favor, as Andrew brought up in the very beginning of our worship. You were appointed to this service but only because you were first chosen to be that, but you were chosen not simply to be a lackey or a butler or a maid. You were chosen to be his friend. A friend of the one who in some sense had a part in the fact that there are quasars. Who knows you as much as a nuclear physicist knows the inner workings of an atom. And he knows you that well and still loves you. He calls you a friend. And as a friend, he knows what you're really like. And he knows how you're really frail. And he knows how you can be really foolish. And he knows that you can hear things a thousand times and still be so self-important in your own mind that you act in any way but loving. And still he says to you, I'm not going anywhere. Don't go anywhere. 
That's the way you and I have to think about ourselves. That's the way he regards us. Friends, if that is true of him, does he sound like someone who needs you to prove something to him? Does he sound like someone who needs you to prove something to him? Short answer is no. So stop trying to prove something. You and I need to operate in his command on his sense of how he sees you and his sense of what it means to love as he has loved you. And how do we do that? Here's where we land the plane. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. That verse is its whole sermon. Let me focus on the first part of it. If you abide in me and my words abide in you. He's talking about a certain relationship that you have with what he has said. That you become an expert in hospitality. You become hospitable to what he has said. Welcoming in his word. Becoming so familiar with it that it's almost at your fingertips. Being familiar, but also to abide in that. Something has acted upon you to be endeared to what he has said. And that invites and involves this idea that we talk about around here called meditation. We began this whole service with a reference to that story in Goodwill Hunting where Robin Williams, the counselor, acts to awaken him to the disparity between the idea of love and the experience of it, and how he has only lived here and knows nothing of this. Later in that film, which I will argue is the most poignant film in the whole film, I ain't going to show it, it's way too brutal, but the storyline is this, Goodwill Hunting, Will Hunting was abused as a child, deeply, severely, profoundly, traumatically, and it has shaped his ability ever to receive love. And when his counselor gets wind of what he endured, he looks at Will in his office one day and says, it's not your fault. And if you know that scene, Will nods his head. Yeah, I get it. And what does the counselor do? He comes to get closer and closer and closer, and every time he's saying it over and over again, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. Until finally something breaks through and the idea becomes flesh and he is devastated. And in that moment there is healing. Beloved, to hear me say to you that you're a friend of God by the way in which his son has died for you, that's, that's not the same thing as just sort of checking off the, to make sure that there's toothbrush and underwear in your suitcase. Uh, that's an idea, check, move on. The thoughts, even in this passage, are not something that you can just sort of hear and then walk on by. You have to sit with them. You have to hear them in such a way, like the Holy Spirit acting on Will Hunting in that moment, saying, it's not your fault. You are his friend. You are his friend. You are his friend. An idea takes on flesh by the power 
of the Spirit. You don't walk into your closet trying to make the moment happen. But you're also not simply satisfied with reading the line and walking away. It has to be something you turn over in your head and even pray it back to God. I'm your friend. Please help me know that this day. You've called me to love as you have loved me. Help me to believe that. And then show me the strength to know what it looks like in this relationship that is very hard and love is the last thing I'm thinking about. Yeah, that's how it works. And you have a great opportunity to practice this sermon in real time for what we're about to do. Because not only is there an opportunity to partake of what is his in the real presence of him by the Spirit, but time to meditate on this notion. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. This is his invitation. And by his help and by his grace, maybe those ideas start to take on flesh.